invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you there in the chair or uh, in one of the pews upstairs, you'll find our passage on page 868. 868. Luke chapter 10, and uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, and I'll read through to verse 16. This is God's Word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus. We're so thankful for his teaching. Lord, we're so thankful that it's been preserved for us in this word And Lord, we pray that as we hear your word now, that you would teach us and instruct us. And Lord, we pray that we would be more faithful disciples of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And this morning, we are going to begin a six-week series on discipleship, and so In this series, we are going to be focusing on the making disciples aspect of our mission statement. And so as we think about making disciples, one thing that's helpful for us to start with is just to ask the question, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? And simply put, a disciple is a follower. Specifically, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. You might remember when Jesus originally called his disciples to himself, he announced, follow me. 
This was the call that he gave to the disciples. And they followed him. And as a result, they became his disciples. And so even as we think about discipling others, we first must be a disciple ourselves. We first must follow Jesus ourselves if we are to disciple others. And then why is it, if that's what a disciple is, if a disciple is a follower of Jesus, then why is it that we as a church would be so interested, uh, so committed to making disciples? Well, if we as a church are disciples, if we are, or if we are disciples, if we are followers of Jesus, then these are the marching orders that the Lord Jesus has given to us as his church. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Lord said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And so these are the marching orders that the Lord has given us. If we are to follow Jesus, we must follow these orders that he has given us to make disciples of all nations. And how do we make disciples? How do we do this? What, what is this discipling work? What does it look like? How do we make disciples of others? Mark Dever, in his little book entitled Discipling, defines the act of discipling another with these words. Discipling is, quote, helping others to follow Jesus. Simply put, helping others to follow Jesus. He goes on to write, Discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. So we see here that the the Christian life can be summarized this way. The Christian life is one of following. It's one of following Jesus, and it's one of helping others to follow Jesus. The Christian life is a life of discipleship, and it is a life of discipling. We engage in discipleship as we follow Jesus, and we disciple others as we help them to follow Jesus. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10 and part of Luke chapter 11. And in these verses, we will learn a great deal, not only about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but then what it means to help others be a disciple of Jesus. We'll consider over these next six weeks discipleship and mission, uh, discipleship and identity, discipleship and service, discipleship and priorities, and discipleship and prayer. But this morning, we want to begin with discipleship and mission. Discipleship and mission. I mentioned it earlier, but when Jesus originally called his 12 disciples, he said, at least to the initial ones that he called, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Of course, the individuals that Jesus was calling to himself, they had been fishermen all their lives. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, listen, you have spent all your life catching fish, but I am going to teach you how to catch men. I will teach you how to catch men for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. And so from the very beginning, Jesus teaches his disciples disciples, that discipleship involves loving others And helping others come to know and follow him. That's really the main point that I want us to see from our passage this morning. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be on mission for Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be on mission for Jesus. We can't separate the two. 
As Jesus is going to send his disciples out in this passage, we will see that he gives them four instructions. And these four instructions will serve as our outline this morning. He tells his disciples to pray, to go, to depend, and to respond. Pray, go, depend, and respond. Let's notice the first instruction that the Lord gives to his disciples as he sends them out on mission. The first instruction is to pray. Look there in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here we see that Jesus is sending out 72 of his disciples on mission. And the responsibility that they've been given is to basically prepare the way for Jesus in these towns and cities uh, that Jesus will then, after they minister there, Jesus will follow behind and he will minister in these places. And it's interesting that as Jesus sends out the 72, that the first thing that Jesus tells them to do is to pray. You'll notice that the command... To go doesn't occur until verse 3. But in verse 1 and 2, he tells them to pray. And it seems that the sense here is not that they are to pray and then go, but the sense is that they are to pray while they go. They are to pray as they go. In their going, they are to pray. And what specifically are they to pray for? Well, Jesus tells us that they are to pray for laborers. In other words, they are to pray for gospel workers. They are to pray for men and women who will engage in the same type of work that they are engaged in and go along with them in this mission to engage in this work. Now, why does Jesus tell them to pray for this? Why does Jesus tell them to pray for gospel workers and laborers? Well, he tells us there. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, imagine this scene. You have 72 of Jesus' disciples. He calls them to himself. He gives them instructions as he's going to send them out on mission. And then they're paired up, right, into twos. And he sends them out. And he sends them out into this city and this town and this community. And one takes this street and another takes this street. And it becomes very apparent to the disciples. I imagine it did not take long at all. That the number of disciples that were going out on this mission were not sufficient for all the needs that lied before them. As they saw this city and this town and this community and all the tremendous spiritual and physical needs that lie before them, they realized there are not enough disciples to meet all the needs. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to pray. Pray for laborers. Pray for workers to join you in the work. You know, you don't have to be in ministry for too long. To realize that there is always a shortage of workers. There is so much need. There is so much opportunity for good and not enough workers. 
It's a challenge for every church. It's a challenge for every ministry. And you know, sometimes the, the solution is not to, to code to those people who are, who are really committed to the work, who are invested in the work, who are serving in various ways, and to push them to do more and more and more and more, right? That might be our inclination. Sometimes the reality is we just need more workers, right? We just need more laborers. That's what Jesus says here in the verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for laborers. Of course, as we lift up our eyes beyond even our local church and our local community, and as we look to the nations, we realize that the need is so, so very vast. We can praise God that in his mercy and grace, more and more laborers are always being sent out, and yet still there are so few. As we think about cities around this world in which there are thousands upon thousands, even millions upon millions at times, who have never heard the name of Jesus. It reminds me as we, during this time of the year, as we take up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, it reminds me of the ministry of Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon Christmas offering is an offering that we take up every year through the months of December and January uh, to support our international missionaries who are serving all around the world. And I'm happy to announce this morning we've hit our goal of $30,000. And so we praise God for that. And I want to thank you. Yeah, you can clap. I want to thank you for your generosity. As we think about Lottie Moon and her ministry, though, she was a single lady who was a missionary to China in the 19th century, and she gave her life for the sake of the Chinese people that they would hear the gospel. One of the things that Lottie Moon was known for, though, as she ministered in China was her her sense of the need and her diligence and faithfulness to write back to the church in America and to to plead with the church, really, to to send resources, to send people to help, that there was so much need in China. She wrote in one letter on November 11th, 1878, she wrote these words, quote, Oh, that my words could be as a trumpet call, stirring the hearts of my brethren and sisters to pray, to labor, to give themselves to this people. We are now a very, very few feeble workers, scattering the grain according to time and strength as it permits. God will give the harvest, doubt it not, but the laborers are so few. Where we have four, we should have not less than 100. Are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake to her high privilege and her weighty responsibilities. End of quote. I think Lottie Moon is expressing there what almost every missionary encounters when they go to the field, that there is so much need and so few workers. And so the Lord Jesus tells us here to pray, pray for workers, pray for laborers, and we can pray that our church, in our body, that God would raise up laborers, he would raise up workers to do ministry here within our church and within our community, and God has been faithful to answer that prayer. We praise God for that. We can continue to pray for that. We can pray that God would also raise up workers and he would raise up laborers from our body to go to the nations and to take the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And you know, God is answering that prayer in our church. As we've had the privilege of sending folks out from our body 
to minister the gospel, to plant churches, to go to the nations. And we pray that he would raise up more laborers. And listen, my friends, as we think about discipleship, as we think about the Lord Jesus pouring himself into these 72 and then sending them out, as we pray for workers, as we pray for laborers, we can also pray that God would give us discernment, that God would give us eyes to see who some of those future workers and laborers might be, even within our church, so that we could come alongside them and encourage them and help them, disciple them, help them become more like Jesus. Jesus says as we go out on mission, as we go out and fulfill the call that he has for our lives, we are to pray and specifically pray for more workers and laborers. The second instruction, he says, is to go. The second instruction that he gives to his disciples as he sends them out on mission is to go. Look there in verse 3. And we read these words, Jesus says, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now here, when we read there in verse 3, go, this is really a precursor to the great charge that the Lord will give to his church after his resurrection and ascension into heaven, right? When he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, here we see this, that he's already telling his disciples to, to pursue this command, They are to go in his name. They are to go for his sake. They are to go loving and serving and helping and teaching others the way of God. And one of the things we notice here is that in Jesus' discipleship of these individuals, right? We think about these 72 in particular. That Jesus' discipleship of these individuals did not just include instruction and teaching, right? So discipleship is not just instruction and teaching. That's a vital part of discipleship. But discipleship includes more than that. Discipleship includes doing and ministering and serving. Discipleship includes getting our hands dirty. I know that a number of uh, college students, a number of medical uh, students attend our church here at Crawford Avenue, and we're very thankful for that. And for our students, I realize that in preparation for the work of field or, or the uh, field of work uh, that you're going to be going into, that oftentimes you have to uh, be involved in internships or a residency or a co-op program. And the idea is that instruction and teaching is good and it's important. But if you're really going to be prepared for the work that you're going to be going into, you need to get your hands dirty. You need to learn. You need to, you need to actually engage in the work itself. And that's an important principle that we see here from the Lord Jesus. If we want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, it's not just enough to sit and receive instruction and teaching, although that is very important. But the Lord would have us to actually engage in the work of ministry, right? The Lord would have us to get our hands dirty. The Lord might have us to change some dirty diapers in the nursery. The Lord might have us to to get involved in some other people's lives. The Lord might have us to walk with someone through a dark season. The Lord might have us to sign up to serve or to to volunteer in our community or to share the gospel with a co-worker. Discipleship involves ministry, ministry to others. And as we're discipling others, we should think about this as as an opportunity to, to invite others to come along with us wherever we might be serving, wherever we might be ministering. And to engage in that work with us. Notice also, as the Lord calls them to go, notice the way in which he calls them to go. He says, behold, 
I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, admittedly, those are not very encouraging words, right? You could imagine what the disciples might, their response might have been when they first heard this. Lambs don't tend to fare well in the midst of wolves. And and so why is Jesus calling the disciples here to go in this way? Why is he insisting that they go in this way? Of course, he is insisting that they go this way because this is the way of Jesus. We remember that it was John the Baptist when he saw the Lord who declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus came as a lamb. Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, to die on the cross in our place so that through faith in him we could be forgiven and we could know God's redemption and salvation. And now Jesus says to us, in the same way that I came to give myself for the sake of others, I call you on mission to give yourself for the sake of others. If we are to go in the same way that Jesus went, then we must be committed to selfless love and sacrifice for the sake of others. You know, the Apostle Paul described his ministry this way. It's remarkable. In Romans chapter 8, verse 36, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and this is how he describes his ministry. He says to the church, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, I've modeled my ministry after the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He came as a lamb to give himself for the sake of others, and I have given myself, poured myself out for the sake of others that they might know the gospel and that they might know the Lord Jesus. Well, how is it that we could pursue this type of ministry? How is it that we could, in fact, pursue a ministry in which we are selflessly giving ourselves for the sake of others as the Lord Jesus does? Jesus doesn't actually address this here in these verses, but the Apostle Paul does. It's interesting when he writes to the church in Rome and he describes his ministry in this way, Paul doesn't say that he pursues sacrifice and and selfless love for the sake of others simply by gritting his teeth and and bearing it. No, that's not the way the Apostle Paul was able to give himself for the sake of others. Paul tells us that the way he was able to give himself for the sake of others was by abiding in and trusting in the love of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, where I read that verse, verse 36, it's interesting to read the context. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The reason why Paul mentions those things are because those are all the things that he is experiencing in his ministry. And he says, shall shall we be separated from the love of Christ because of these persecutions we're experiencing, these hardships, these difficulties in our mission? He goes on to say, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the answer. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the key of being able to follow Jesus in a ministry of love and and sacrifice. It is to know and abide in the love of Jesus himself. We go as lambs, but we go as lambs knowing that we have a great shepherd. A great shepherd who has already traveled this road. A great shepherd who has laid down his life for our redemption. A great shepherd who loves us and promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And it's as we trust in his promise and in his presence and in his love that he sustains us. So we are to pray. We are to go. Third instruction that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples is to depend. To depend. Look there in verse 4 and we read these words. Jesus says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, if, if the disciples aren't already surprised by Jesus' instructions, this, this surely must have gotten their attention. Notice the things that they are not to take. They are not to take a money bag, so they're not to have any cash. They're not to take a knapsack, so they're not to take a suitcase with them. They're not to take sandals, which I assume here this means not an extra pair. But think about this. If you were to take a trip to maybe Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Charleston, South Carolina, what are some of the preparations you might make for that trip? You might go by the bank, right? The ATM, get some cash. Or nobody uses cash anymore today, right? So you might just make sure you have a credit card in your wallet. And the Lord Jesus would say, no. You can leave your wallet at home. All the cash, all the credit cards, you won't need that. Or you might decide, well, I'm going to be gone for four, five, six, seven days. I'm I'm going to take these outfits with me and lay them all out, you know, on your bed. And you might decide to take two or three pair of shoes, depending on who you are, you know, and you open up your suitcase. And the Lord says, no, you won't need a suitcase or any of those clothes or any of those shoes. I just want you to go with the clothes on your back and maybe a toothbrush, just bare essentials. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Why would Jesus tell his disciples to go in this way? Well, let me make this clear. I don't think that Jesus' instructions here are prescriptive or commanded for all Christians you know, in every situation, okay? So we just need to make that clear. So, so I don't think that Jesus is giving us packing instructions here for all Christians who ever go on a short-term mission trip. All right, and, and there's a number of reasons why I would say that. We don't have time to get into it all this morning, but, but, but one reason is because when we go to the book of Acts, we see that the apostles, when they go on mission trips and mission journeys, they don't follow these specific packing instructions. These were specific instructions given in a specific situation to the disciples. Having said that, I think Jesus is conveying to the disciples and by extension to us a very important principle. And the principle is this, that when we go on mission for Jesus, we must go with an attitude of complete dependence upon Jesus. 
The Lord Jesus would have us to go in such a way that we are dependent upon him, that we need him, that we're resting in him, that we're trusting in him and not in ourselves. You know, it does raise the question, I wonder how many churches today do not fulfill the mission that God has for them, not because they have too little, but because they have too much. They don't fulfill the mission that God has for them, not because they have too little, but because they have too much. I mean, my goodness, could this not be stated as an indictment against the entire American church? I remember I was talking to a Christian leader several years ago, and he was advising a local church, and uh, they were struggling, the church was struggling I think it had been in decline for some time and they were struggling to kind of fulfill their mission and to be effective in making disciples and so he was giving them counsel. And as he was talking to me about this situation, he mentioned that the church had about $90,000 in the bank, which was a lot of money for a church this size as I understood it. And what he told me in talking to me about that situation was he felt like that $90,000 was just a curse for the church, and the best thing to, that could happen for the church was if they gave it away. Now, that kind of struck me. I was kind of surprised by that. But why did he say that? Because what, what he believed was that the church had come to a place where, where they could just, man, they could live off that $90,000 for like ever, you know? Just be complacent, content, never take any risk, never step out in faith, just coast. And so it was a hindrance to them. And so listen, my friends, it's a reminder to us that, that resources can be a tremendous blessing in gospel ministry, but they can also be a hindrance. They can be a hindrance if that's what we begin to put our faith and our confidence in. I want you to know that I, I'm not telling that story because I want us to empty our bank account, okay? So don't, don't freak out. I really don't want us to. But I do tell us, I do mention that story to remind us that if we are to be effective, faithful disciples for the Lord Jesus, we must walk by faith and not by sight. We must be willing at times to take risk. We must cast ourselves in dependence upon the Lord. Oh, may God save us from just content, complacent cruising through life and ministry. And may we give ourselves for the sake of the gospel and dependence upon the Lord. The fourth instruction that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples is to respond, to respond. And this is actually where he spends most of his time. If you look there in verse 5 to the end of the passage, we read these words. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom 
than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus here assumes that his disciples, as they go out on mission, are going to encounter different responses. Some people will receive and embrace their ministry and their message, and others will reject it. And so Jesus tells them here how to respond, and and the response can be summarized this way. Jesus tells them to remain, and he tells them to move on. To remain and to move on. So when others welcome their ministry, they are to remain. They are to love and to serve and to bless. This is the reason why Jesus tells them in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. In other words, Jesus says if you go to a house and, and they receive you and there's opportunity for ministry there and they receive your ministry, they receive your message, don't start looking for Better options, you know, like better accommodations. Who's got the bigger house and a nicer TV and a pool in the backyard, you know, bouncing around to where you can get the best place to stay? He says, no, be content, settle in, bless, serve, minister. Let them receive your ministry. But then he says, on the other hand, if there are those who reject the ministry of the disciples, they are to move on. They are to know That those individuals that have rejected the ministry, have rejected the message of Jesus, will give an account to God, and they are to move on to benefit others who will receive the ministry. In fact, there's this expression here, they are to wipe the dust off of their feet as they leave the city. This was an expression of, of distinction, of separation, really an expression of judgment. We see this played out actually as well in the book of Acts as sometimes the apostles would leave a city and they would wipe the dust off to their feet indicating that judgment would come upon that city because they had rejected the ministry and message of Jesus. Now I imagine that most of us would probably benefit from having more boldness in our sharing Christ with others. I know that's true of me. But this is a reminder here in these verses, that boldness doesn't mean that we force ourselves on other people, right? It's a reminder that as representatives of the Lord Jesus, our responsibility is not to change others, to impose ourselves on others, to ensure that they will change, but rather our responsibility is to love and to serve and to share the message of Christ, and then by faith, and it is an act of faith, To give that to the Lord and trust Him to do what we cannot do, to change and transform lives. And uh, when I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine who was, uh, he became a Christian later on in life when he was an adult. He wasn't a believer uh, as a young person. And when he became a believer, he was really zealous and, and really loved the Lord and really had a burden that other people would experience God's love and mercy and grace. And so, uh, he went home uh, shortly after he had, he had been converted, and he began to share the gospel with his family, in particular with his dad. And he started to share the gospel with his dad, and his dad really wasn't interested. His dad didn't really want to have anything to do with it. And so 
he keeps pressing a little bit and they get in an argument, right? He's telling me this story and he tells me about how his dad, they're going back and forth and it starts to get physical. And so they start getting physical with one another and the story ends with, he has his dad on the floor in a headlock trying to convince him to follow Jesus, okay? Now, as he grew in his faith, right, as he grew in maturity, he realized that wasn't the most winsome way to persuade people to follow Jesus, okay? But it is a reminder to us, right, that that the Lord has never called us to force ourselves upon others or impose the gospel upon others, but rather we are to share Christ with others and then trust God to do the work that we cannot do. The Lord Jesus says, listen, no headlocks, no imposing ourselves on others. Trust me to do what you cannot do. I will take the word that you share and I will change and transform lives. So those are the four instructions. They are to pray, they are to go, they are to depend, they are to respond. Most of the message this morning has been directed to Christians, to those who identify as disciples of Jesus. We've talked about what it means to follow Jesus. We've talked about what it means to help others follow Jesus. But I want to spend just a a couple minutes here at the end talking to those who have not yet decided to follow the Lord Jesus. Do you hear Jesus' warning in these verses? I read them earlier. It's a very serious warning. Jesus says that for those who reject the ministry and the message of his disciples, they are, in fact, rejecting him and his Father. You see it there in verse 16. I really believe this last verse, verse 16, summarizes the entire passage. He says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In fact, Jesus says that it will be better on the day of judgment For Sodom, Sodom was an Old Testament uh, city in the Old Testament that was known for its wickedness and perversity and sexual immorality and and God's judgment fell upon the city of Sodom and, and consumed the city. God says it will be better for Tyre and Sidon, which were two other cities in the Old Testament that fell under the judgment of God. He says that it will be better for these cities on the day of judgment than for those who rejected the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, of course, because the ministry that the cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, the ministries that they experienced were in no way compared to the ministry that these cities experienced where the disciples went. I mean, mean, the ministry that these cities where the disciples went was was far superior to the ministry that that those cities in the Old Testament had experienced because because it was the ministry of Jesus himself and his disciples. They actually saw the Lord Jesus. They heard him teach. They they received healing from his disciples. They, They experienced miracles in their midst. And so they were all the more responsible, all the more culpable for their rejection of the gospel. It reminds us of a parable that the Lord Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, just a few chapters ahead of where we are now in Luke's gospel. Jesus says that there was a rich man and he died and he went to hell. 
And Jesus says that when this rich man was in hell and he was suffering, he had a request. He requested that someone would be sent back to tell his family, his father's house, in particular he had five brothers, to tell them of what had come of him and to warn them that they would, they would turn and that they would, they would follow God with their lives so that, so that their lives wouldn't end the same way his did and that they wouldn't experience the judgment of God the same way he had. And do you know what? Do you know the, the response that that rich man received? Jesus tells us that the rich man was told, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the scriptures. Let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, listen to this, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus' words there are foreshadowing of the reality that he would soon rise from the dead and yet there would be many, many, many who would not believe. And Jesus is teaching us that at the end of the day, it's not that we need, it's not that we need more evidence to believe. You know, sometimes people will say that. Sometimes people will say, if I just had a little bit more evidence, if I had more proof, if I would experienced some kind of miracle, if I, if I went through some dynamic spiritual experience, then I would believe, then I would follow Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is showing us here that at the end of the day, it's not because we need more evidence that we don't believe, but it's because our willful, sinful rebellion. It's because of our stubborn unbelief. I wonder where we fall on this spectrum of culpability, of responsibility. You know, you have like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom over here who came under the judgment of God because they rejected God and they rejected his ways. And then you have, you know, those who experience firsthand the ministry of Jesus and his healing and his miracles and his teaching and and the miracles and healing and teaching of his disciples. And they have even a far greater responsibility. Where do we fall on that continuum, that culpability? I don't know for sure, but I imagine we are much further on this side. In fact, I'm confident of it. Consider it. We have the Old Testament scriptures. All the promises, all the prophecies of the one who would come. We have a record of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, a biblical record. We have... We have the witness and testimony of eyewitnesses to the historical reality of the resurrection. We have the faithful testimony of the apostles recorded for us in the New Testament. Oh, my friends, how great might the judgment be if we reject such a clear and powerful testimony to the identity and saving power of the Lord Jesus? Jesus' command today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Follow me. And remember that when Jesus announced these words, it wasn't so much an invitation as it was a command. Follow me. Will you submit to that command? Will you yield yourself to the Lord Jesus? 
Will you trust him and follow him so that you might receive the salvation and redemption and mercy and grace of God? I hope that you will. And then, by the grace of God, may you help others to follow Jesus, to become more and more like him. This is the call of Jesus on all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the call, Lord, for the command to follow. Lord, I do pray that there would be those in this room this morning who would take up that command for the very first time, that they would trust the Lord Jesus and follow him. Lord, we do thank you for the blessing of salvation. We thank you for the opportunity even now to celebrate your salvation and redemption through baptism. We thank you for Lindsay who is going to come and share her testimony with us. We pray that you would continue to bless as we worship you. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray.